Our scripture reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Trinity. Uh, my name is Jonathan. <clears throat> it's good to be with you. Uh, I may be a little bit sniffly and snuffly. Last week, just so you know, I was not slated to preach, actually. It was kind of a miracle. Got sick Saturday night, called Jeff, but it was not the panic phone call of like, who's going to preach for me? Jonah was already slated, so thank you, Jonah. It happens to be Jonah's birthday. Is that right? Is that what I heard? All oh, right, Jonah. 24 years young. If you don't know Jonah, he is our student ministry director. He's right over here. So give him a hug and 24 whatevers, all right? <clears throat> We're in this new series that we have entitled Messy Church, Faithful God. Now listen, if church is new to you, don't get weirded out by the title Messy Church where you're saying, this is not going to apply to my life. Just think of your own life or your own morning, or your own family, or your own drive to church, or the things in your life that haven't gone the way that you expected, and you're wondering, is there a spiritual reality that's going to guide me through the ups and downs of life? Messy life, messy marriage, messy family, messy society, messy school, messy girlfriend and boyfriend dynamic, wherever you are in this, right? Messy church means that it's communal, as Jeff has said. Right, that we are in process, but there is a faithful God. Very excited to be in this book with you. We're going to spend somewhere around four and a half to five months in 1 Corinthians. This is going to take us right up to the beginning of June. We've entitled it Messy Church, Faithful God. But why give this book so much time and attention right now? Let me give you five reasons why we're going to spend an extended amount of time in 1 Corinthians, then jump into this intro portion from chapter 1. Why so much time and attention on 1 Corinthians? Number one, because, simple, it's God's Word. That's it. It's God's Word. And like all of God's Word, it is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 Second, 1 Corinthians is a letter that's written to a young church. It's inspired by God, and when we listen to it, we're listening to God speak, number one. Number two, we are in a very unique place 
as a young church, making this transition from being a church plant to being an independent, self-sustaining church. That's going to take place on February 5th. We're calling it Particularization Sunday, where we become a particular church. We're in a unique place here at Trinity and looking into God's love and lessons for a young upstart church like the one in Corinth is only going to deepen and mature our resolve to be a community committed to following Jesus in this time in this space. So that's number two. Number three, third reason, Corinth was young. They were brash. They were polytheistic. They were diverse. They were very spiritual people committed to the advancement of the individual, as you're going to see at all costs. And I think we're going to find a lot in common and connection between their city and our city, between ancient, ancient Southern Greece and Southern California. We're going to see those connections very clearly. Number four, if you have ever questioned the relevance of Christianity, doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a long time or you are a sophisticated skeptic, you've got questions, you're leaning into the relevance of Christianity. If this is you, if you've ever had questions about it, and Christianity's ability to speak to subjects of contemporary concern, basically saying, where's the relevance? This seems outdated, outmoded. How's it supposed to shape my life? I live in 21st century San Diego. That was written over 2,000 years ago, around 2,000 years ago, right, to an ancient audience. I am doubting and having questions about the relevance of Christianity. If you are, listen to what we're going to cover over the next few months. In this letter, the Apostle Paul is going to tackle issues including, but not limited to, unity and factionalism, division and leadership dynamics, bigotry and classism, power plays among powerful people, sexual scandal, lawsuits amongst believers, and then he's going to tackle teaching and instruction around these subjects, sexuality, marriage, divorce, gender, food and idolatry, and other issues of conscience. Things that people are going to look back and look at our time and space and say, those Christians talked about masks. What was going on in those communities? Very similar. They're having to address specific issues going on in that community related to the heart, the mind, the conscience, the ability to make a free choice for the good of other people. They're talking about food sacrifice to idol, other issues of conscience. Then Paul's going to spend time breaking down the themes of gifts versus character and what it might look like to have a character that exceeds even the greatest gifts in the room. We're going to get to chapter 13 near the end of this, where Paul says, if I have the ability to move mountains but lack love, I'm nothing. What he says is, if I have great clout, all the charisma, if I am extremely gifted, but I don't have the character to match it, I'm nothing. We see this playing out all over the place. Politics, maybe your own family. Right? These are issues of contemporary concern. And then near the end of this letter, Paul's going to unpack some of the more important ideas in the Bible related to death and eternity and the promise of life and resurrection that are wrapped up in the reality of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. That's number four. And then lastly, let me, then we'll jump in. Why are we in this book? Fifth reason. If you have ever wondered what it might look like to work out the implications of the gospel within a sophisticated, pluralistic, influential city like Corinth or San Diego or Los Angeles or New York or a Portland or a Seattle, anywhere like that, 
where Western secularism is on the move, and you're wondering, what does it actually look, out, look like to work out the implications of the gospel? Let me just teach you this real quick. There is this thing called the gospel. It's the centerpiece of Christianity. It hinges on a person. It's about one man's life, death, and resurrection. But then most of the rest of the New Testament is working out the implications of that. What he's saying is, if Jesus is who he said he is, if he actually has resurrected from the dead, does it make a difference or is it ancient mythology? Ancient mythology does not shape your life, but the reality of God becoming a human being changes everything. And in these secular spaces that we run in, we get to see it worked out. That's what we're doing. That's what they're doing. So five basic reasons to get us rolling, why we're going to spend so much time, and I'm actually really, really excited to take you into this book. So 1 Corinthians, the first nine verses, three things I'll take you through. Number one, I'm going to spend a moment talking and unpacking the context of what's going on. That'll happen, of course, from week to week, but let me give you an added chunk just to get us started. So context is part one. Secondly, we're going to look at a couple of questions, two in, in particular, around identity. Thirdly, we'll look at the role that Jesus plays in those first nine verses and in setting the stage for this letter. Can I simply remind you too, sometimes you look at the table of contents in the Bible. We're in a Bible reading plan. We encourage you to jump in with that with us this year. We're looking at the New Testament and the Psalms, but sometimes you crack open the Bible, you read some of these titles, and you go, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. I can't pronounce it, which means I probably can't read it. It's not going to make any connection to my life. Let me say up front, this is a letter to a church that was most likely smaller than this one. If you think of a church of around 100 to 200 people in a city of about 50,000, then you're getting close to what this looked like in its original context. It is a letter written to people who are figuring out what it means to work out the implications of Jesus' life in their context. That's all it is. A letter to real people who were really struggling, as you're going to see, all right? So context, identity, Jesus. Let me jump in with part one, context. Ancient Roman Corinth. Corinth was one of the largest cities and most important cities of ancient Greece, which was then demolished by Rome in around 146 BC, reestablished as a Roman city. It started as a Greek city, which means it's got all of this culture that's being melded and flooded together. So it's got Greek background, Greek roots. Now it's being remade in 44 BC by Julius Caesar, reestablished as a Roman city in Greece. Corinth becomes a melting pot for Greeks, for Syrians and Jews and resettled Roman veterans. Now look at this picture. Because of its geography, situated between the mainland of southern Greece and the Peloponnese Peninsula. Anybody ever been here? Anybody ever been to Corinth? Anybody ever been to Greece? My sister just went to Greece. Very jealous, right? She got to spend time in Greece. Kerhoulis is a Greek last name. If you have ever wondered, you probably didn't. But, right, Kerhoulis is a Greek name. These are my people, all right? I feel connected to them. I should be there on vacation in the Peloponnese, this beautiful peninsula down at the bottom. Corinth is in that little peninsula, that little isthmus, that land bridge between the mainland Greece and between the Peloponnese Peninsula on the bottom. Right? This is where Corinth is located. You can see Athens kind of over to the east, Corinth right there in the middle. 
This isthmus of Corinth was this well-traveled land bridge between the mainland and the peninsula, and of course its ports became significant stops in the Mediterranean trade. One of the unique things that they are known for exporting in the city of Corinth was this uh, uh, special blend of bronze. There's a lot going on in this city. There's a lot of new money. There's some old money. One of the things that they're also uniquely known for is what's known as the Isthmian Games, right? You've got to think Olympics meets Coachella. This is like a, a music festival and an athletic competition. It was on the every other year with the Olympics in Athens, but this is a different type of competition that brought uh, a lot of people to the area. So you've got visitors, you've got people coming to check out this new city that's been resurrected by Julius Caesar just about 100 years before. And so a lot happening, economy, trade, athletics, industry, bronze, exports, new money. Andrew Wilson, he writes, Roman Corinth was a large, bustling, commercial, and pluralistic city in southern Greece. It was the regional capital of Acadia, known among other things for its port, its sexual promiscuity, and its hosting of the biennial Isthmian Games. Let me make a connection to you from that city to our city. Ready? Translation and connection. Modern San Diego is a large, bustling, commercial, and pluralistic city in Southern California. It's a leading city within the region, known among other things for its port or its beaches, its sexual promiscuity, freedom and individualism, and its annual hosting of Comic-Con. All right, we're going with Comic-Con on this one. A lot of things could get put in there. I was thinking sports, just didn't want to go there. Comic-Con's way more fun, right? It's annual hosting of Comic-Con. David Garland, he gives us a feel for the culture of the city and the way it overlaps with our own experiences in the West when he says this. To use terms from American culture, schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, and driving rivals' name through the mud, right, all describe what was required to attain success in this society. Sounds very much like the world that we live in. And amidst all of this upward mobility and new prosperity and innovation, Corinth was also a deeply religious city. There were temples and shrines to the Greek and to the Roman gods, Aphrodite, Athena, Apollo, Demeter and Kore, Hera, Poseidon, a god by the name of Asclepios, the god of medicine. Very religious place. And somewhere around 50 AD, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul, who's on his second missionary journey, is traveling through the greater Mediterranean region, and he notices that the prominent place that Corinth plays between the lower peninsula and the mainland of Greece, and he says, this place that's polytheistic, that's brash, that's got new money, that people are dragging each other's names in the mud, that this is a dog-eat-dog, -dog, new town, new city, this place is the perfect location for an outpost for the gospel. That place is where God is calling me to plant a church. This was Paul's strategy. He goes, where are the people? Where are the people traveling to and from? Let's go to those cities and let's plant churches. Paul's looking at this city if you go to Acts chapter 18. We get inside Paul's psyche. Most likely Paul is looking at this place on his visit going, this place is crazy. It's like a little bit of L.A. meets Las Vegas. I mean, I don't even know how to tackle this sort of city. The text tells us 
Fear builds up in his heart. He's wondering, should I stay? Is this the place to plant a church? But in a vision and in a dream, the Holy Spirit tells him, I love this, Acts chapter 18. The Holy Spirit whispers to the Apostle Paul, this is the place. I've called you to plant a church here. Do not fear. There are many people in this city who are called by my name. How many Christians were there in the city at that time? Zero. But the Holy Spirit whispers to him, don't fear. Man, it's the wild, wild west. It's crazy here. There are many people who are going to give their life to me, plant here. And he does. He stays for 18 months. And he plants this young church. After 18 months in the city, he moves on to another city because that was his strategy. He moves on to Ephesus. He spends about three years in Ephesus. And then after three years, as he's about to move on from that city, he gets word that things are not going so well in the church that he just planted in Corinth. In fact, if you have your Bible open, I believe it's chapter 1, verse 11. Paul gets word from, quote, Chloe's people. All right, I got to find this Chloe one day. Who is Chloe? I think she's like, like the local, of course, she's like this lovely local Christian leader. I think she's like a mob boss in my mind, right? These are like, she's like, I heard from Chloe's people. Things are not so good in First Corinthians, in Corinth, right? So this is what's taking place. He hears a report from the godly people in the city. The city's fracturing. The church is getting broken down. And so Paul is writing to address what's taking place in this young church in a polytheistic, modern, secular city. There are serious leadership issues and controversies. There are leaders who have crept in, and Paul's going in the direction of the gospel, and these leaders start taking them in different competing directions. There's sexual scandals and lawsuits and plenty of confusion around biblical sexual ethics and gender and divorce. There are arguments taking place during worship. There's arguments and contention taking place about worship. We're going to get to a place in this book where Paul addresses the fact that somebody died in judgment during communion. He's like, some of you have even fallen asleep, what he's using the language of. Some of you have died with God's judgment on your head during worship. Right? Serious things are happening in this church. And then they have this foundational dismissal of the primacy of the resurrection. Paul gets to the point of saying, without the resurrection, you shouldn't be a Christian. In fact, Christianity doesn't make sense. There's no such thing. Jesus was a fake. He's not to be trusted. With the resurrection, right, it changes everything. But let me summarize this part by saying the dominant issue in Corinth was this. The boundary line between the church and the world seemed to have disappeared. That's what he's addressing in this letter. The boundary line between the church and the world had disappeared. And Paul lovingly, slowly, meticulously, he lays out this letter writing to reestablish the difference between being citizens of heaven who are apprenticing under King Jesus and being citizens of Corinth who are apprenticing under King Caesar. He goes, look, there's a difference. There is tremendous overlap. But do not hide the differences that King Jesus will make in your life and what it means for you to be a citizen in this place. The main issue is assimilation. 
blending in. When you blend in the distinction of Jesus, it's gone. This is the primary issue in 1 Corinthians. Other letters that Paul writes, there's contention, right? There's persecution, there's oppression from the outside. What's happening in this letter is they're starting to look just like the city of Corinth. And he says there should be a division between how you live with Jesus at the center of your life and how the rest of the world lives with King Caesar and what he represents at the center of your life. Let me speak to Christians in the room for a moment. Do you sense a difference, a strange difference in the way in which you live? Do people look at you and wonder why are they making those decisions about life, money, power, family? Or they say, that person, we would never, ever know that they follow Jesus. There's a fine line between being a strange Christian who's always on top of other people, who's always forcing a conversation about spirituality, but there's something that says, I can't help but talk about Jesus. I mean, like, he's the center of my life. He's the center of world history, secular history, uh, uh, sacred history, all of it is changed because of his arrival. We've got B.C., we've got A.D., all of us have to agree that Jesus is the centerpiece of something. But for the Christian, you go, man, he's changing my whole world. Everything about me is being rearranged and transformed slowly but surely by the presence of God through the Spirit, through his people, so that people will know my life is different because Christ is at the center. Blending in and assimilation was a problem then, and it can be a problem now. And you understand this too. Each and every day you wake up to an untold number of options when thinking about which religious or belief system to build your life upon. All the options are in front of you when you woke up today. So did they. But they have all the options. Each day you wake up being told to make yourselves happy, choose your own destiny. So did they. And each day you're confronted with the reality that the decision to follow Jesus will be unpopular and that the cultural tide will erode your faith quickly if the gospel stops being central in your life. So did they. See, Paul planted this church. He spent 18 months with them. He sees vibrancy. He sees them growing. He sees transformation. He's working with them, discipling, helping them work out the implications of Jesus. He leaves for an extended period of time. All of a sudden, what was so central has become peripheral. They have all of this breakdown. Guess what? The enemy hates gospel movements. He hates it when people start to see that there's purpose, that there's a thoughtfulness, that there's meaning in life when Jesus is at the center of that. He wants to wreck churches, but we serve a spirit that's stronger than the spirit of the world. But this is what's taking place, right? Self, ego, sin, selfishness, and the work of the enemy any way he can to erode the centrality of the gospel in a community. But Paul is saying, let me love you, let me help you. Right? Things are falling apart, but God is faithful. Right? Messy church, faithful God. Bit of the context in the background. 
What's so unique, and this is what I'm going to take you to in the second half of the sermon, what's so special and unique about this letter is that it's one of the harder letters that Paul has to write in the New Testament, more personal, more relevant maybe uh, to our modern audience, but he begins with this powerful encouragement. He goes, I got to spend 16 chapters kind of breaking down and healing, but let me begin with this incredible word of encouragement and hope. So let me take you there, a couple things he says about their identity, part two. All right, so context, part two, identity. One of the first things Paul says to the Christians at Corinth is this. Number one, your sins and your failures, though there are a lot of them, they are not the truest things about you, okay? Number one, your sins and your failures are not the truest thing about you. Look at verse one. Verse one says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have verse 2, look at that for a moment. Verse 2 in our translation says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. This is how the message translation puts it. To believers cleaned up by Jesus and set apart for a God-filled life. Given what I told you about this letter and the context of why Paul is writing, those verses seem somewhat ironic. This is what he says. You are set apart and you are sanctified. That's the language he's using. Doesn't seem like it. Does not seem like they are set apart and sanctified to be God's holy people used in a specific way to give him honor and to love all of their neighbors. Does not look like it. Seems like a frat party has gone terribly wrong. More than a church who is committed to working out what it means to follow Jesus in all of life. See, Paul is telling this young church, do not forget who you really are. Despite the formidable pressure to believe otherwise. At the core of who you are as a person is not a collection of mistakes. It is not a bundle of shame. Your sins and your failures are not even close to the truest thing about you. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is giving lots of examples and illustrations in real time of how this works itself out. Remember in John chapter 8, a sinful woman She is publicly humiliated as an object lesson for the Pharisees to use to catch Jesus saying something, teaching something that he should not be saying, should not be doing. There was no doubt in anybody's mind when they brought this sinful woman in front of all of these people, there was no doubt in anybody's mind, including Jesus, about this woman's character, about her occupation, about her past or about her present. The only question that was up for debate in that moment was, how about this woman's future? Jesus, do you condemn her? What they're really asking is, do you actually know the truest thing about this woman's life? Because the truest thing about this woman's life is going to dictate her future. 
Or what about the lovely, incredible gospel story of the prodigal son? But here's this young man, right, who is seriously blind to his own need, to his own depravity, to the fact that he has had all of these conversations with the closest members of his family. This guy loses everything very early in the story, and then he begins to say to himself, I wish I could go home, but of course my father would never let me come home. I sure wish I could go home and just be a servant in his house, but of course I'm a failure and I'm condemned. But what happens in that story is Jesus rearranges the truest thing about this man. The reality is there are serious pressures in your life to believe that the truest thing about you are the failures, the weaknesses, and the sin. And you know what Jesus says? You have sinned. You are somebody who has morally failed, but it is no longer the truest thing about you. This is what's so beautiful about the gospel. This is what he says to this person in the story who has been caught in adultery. What he says to her is, Leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Guess why? Because I'm going to be condemned for you. This young man who's heaping shame upon himself because of his own choices, the prodigal son, he comes running home. You know what the father says to him? It's not the truest thing about you. Man, it crushed me in the moment. But the truest thing about you is that you're my son. Bring the sandals, bring the robe, bring the ring. My son has come home. Jesus is always working to redefine the truest thing about humanity. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Look, if you're a Christian, you are called and set apart. You are destined to be holy. Holy is a word we completely misunderstand. What he's saying is, you are destined to be like my one true son. You want to know what he's like? Read your Bible. You want to know what God is like? Relish his story with other people. Don't go off caricatured versions of Jesus. Go to the source to learn about this man's character. To be holy and set apart means that you are special. You are sacred. Christianity is the only religion that says that that set-apartness, which is so human, does not come through human accomplishment. It comes through divine gift. I call your name, you're set apart. It says who you are. God has called your name. And then in a city where people were climbing up the ladder, you know what they're looking for? Who's calling my name? And he goes, God has called your name. God has set you apart. In your world, in your life, in your community, the reality is it looks like anything but holiness. Hey, God is faithful to you. Messy church, right? Faithful God. Part one, your sins, your failures, your weaknesses are not the truest thing about you. But secondly, your strengths and your gifts are not the truest thing about you. I am more than the collection of sin, shame, and failures in my life. I am a lot more than the collection of my wins, my strengths, and my best characteristics. B.K. Peterson, he puts it like this. Corinth seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. Baked into each human being is this longing to be recognized, seen, and valued. Use this phrase. 
There's a longing behind every longing, okay? In every human life, every human heart, there are all these desires, there are all these loves, there are all these longings. Christianity says there's actually a longing pulling them all together, and it's ultimately and simply the desire to be seen and loved. But according to Christianity, what that means is it's an ultimate desire for God himself. The Bible teaches us God is love. You are made to be loved by this God. But when you bypass the natural order of things and you look for love in all the wrong places, in all the wrong relationships, in dreams that are never going to give you what your soul wants, you know what you're going to end up with? An identity built on the wrong things. Fundamentally, incomprehensible, what's the word? I don't know. Doesn't work together. Doesn't work together. I am building a life upon these things. God has not called you to that. He has spoken in Jesus Christ. He has called your name. He calls you out, sets you apart, not because you've done anything that is worthy of being set apart, but because of his son and his connection to you. Psalm 127 says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You ever gotten tired of building in a way where nothing seems to be panning out? Lord God, I am tired of trying to build a life, build a reputation, build a family, trying to build a future. I am working hard. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds this for you, you will not find what you are looking for. Man, but he is so faithful. Guess what he's doing through the Spirit of God? He's calling to you. What he's saying is, I want to build your house. I want to build you up. I'm calling you. You are the set-apart ones. Think of who the Corinthians were. They're people who were stuck in all of this sexual disorder, gender confusion, power plays, movement upward. Their church looked just like the city of Corinth. And Paul says to them, before he jumps into anything, God loves you. God is faithful to you. He has called you. He will see it through to the incredible end. Yeah, there's a lot of mess here, but guess what's the more important part of this thing? God is faithful. All right. Let me take you to the last part. Context, identity, and the role that Jesus plays here, especially at the beginning. Here's what I want to say as I wrap this up. Jesus authors the truest things about you. Okay? Jesus is actually the one who authors the truest things about you. Look at these verses with me, nine verses, and in nine verses, you're going to notice that nine times Jesus is named specifically. Pull this up on the screen. Paul, writing to a church that's probably like this, what's he going to say to us? My Chloe's people got back to Paul. This is not good. Right? This is not good. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people together. With all those everywhere, this includes you, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in 
Christ Jesus, for in him, in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Man, by the time you get to the end of the nine verses, you got to go like, hey, 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 repetition, we heard you enough. It's getting a little bit awkward. You have put Jesus's name into every one of the nine verses. He is spoken nine times in the space of nine verses. See, members of that church in Corinth and members of this church called Trinity, Jesus Christ is the author of the truest things about you. Like he has called you, he has destined you for a purpose, even if your life looks like anything but what you would call sanctified, set apart, and holy. Why? Because God is the giver of good gifts. What is the one thing that transforms the human heart so that you actually begin to look like what you already declared to be in Jesus Christ? Let me say, it's not more work but it's a lot more grace. This is what transforms your life. More of the gospel. It's the starting point of Christianity. It's the finishing point of Christianity. It is everything. It's not as if I become a Christian because of God's love and grace in my life and I finish my Christianity because of my own effort and my own work. What he's saying is he's called you. Your life is a disaster in the middle. God is faithful to you. Look at that verse, verse eight. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Stephen unputs it. You may, you may be falling apart at the seams, but the God who called you has secured your past, present, and future. He is holding you together. He goes, look, man, we're going to address some serious stuff in this community. But let me tell you something that's the most true about you. Jesus is the author of your life, your present, your future. Christianity teaches that when you become a Christian, there's something that takes place like this. It's called justification. When I believe my past, present, future, all of it is secure in the work of Jesus Christ, his life laid down for me. That takes place like this. The Bible also teaches us that this thing called glorification, where I am headed because of Jesus Christ, is secure. But you know what it says? God is faithful and patient in the present part of the salvation story. Right here, right now, where it's hard and messy, God is faithful to you. These two bookends, man, they are secure. We get a little nervous in the middle. And Paul is saying, look, you have reason to be nervous, but there is a louder voice on top of it. It's God's love. It's God's faithfulness. Right? He's not going anywhere. Jesus is a savior whose fidelity to us means he is willing to take the messiness upon himself. Jesus carries the heaviest, most damaging parts of our humanity with him to the cross. And he promises through his spirit to sustain you in the process 
of being transformed. God is faithful. Look, messy church, messy life, messy marriage, messy dreams that have not quite worked themselves out, all sorts of things that aren't quite what they should be. Right? Messiness, but faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as a church, we're really excited to look into this letter, so helpful, so relevant, so honest, about a church in process. If there's anybody in this room today who has wondered, do I belong in church? I pray that they would have the courage to go read 1 Corinthians and to look at the disaster of the community where they took their eyes off of grace. They started to be more informed by the voices around them than the voice of the Spirit through his people, through his word. Assimilation crept in. And Paul wants to show the difference that having a life centered on Jesus makes. He wants to show them what it looks like. And he's so loving, he's so faithful, he's so slow because he is your man. Slow to anger like you. So we thank you for Paul's leadership in this church. But more than that, we're not saved by Paul or his teaching. We are saved by a faithful God through all of our mess, though all, despite all of our mess. This God is kind, he's loving, he's forgiving. I thank you for the way in which those nine verses are jam-packed with Jesus. But if we are in a season of life where there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain, it feels like there's 15 chapters of life about to get worked out, I pray we'd start with these verses. God is faithful. He will see us through to the end. He is committed to our well-being. God's objective reality overrides our subjective experiences. That's the gospel. And you have declared us to be yours. So we pray that even in the hurt, pain, and waiting, we would see your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.